So I wanted to turn to um, another theme that comes through the book, um, maybe just the last two, um, one concerning uh, justice, firstly. Um, so you note that the U.S. left is trapped in concerns about justice and fairness rather than, I guess, freedom and power. And um, you critique notions such as racial capitalism, for example, which um, as you argue, sees on a, a sort of essential unfairness, an unequal exchange, a ripoff that um, that powers that capitalism rather than a capitalism which is based fundamentally on on fair exchange. I, I, I you're obviously writing this specifically about the about the U.S. case, and you know, guilty obviously of methodological nationalism, which is which is a good, which is a totally fine, I think. Mm. Um, but what strikes me is about how much of the rest of the world um, increasingly speaks like this in precisely these terms of of justice. I mean, I, I've written about this myself, about the way that it seems to kind of pervade um, so much discussion nowadays and the kind of, yeah, basically the language of social justice, even in places which um, previously seemed more immune to this. I mean, I think you, one of the notes um, in Microverses, you say that you were speaking to an Italian friend who could talk about Meloni uh, objectively, treat politics almost aesthetically with a certain requisite distance to almost, you know, then the way that you could appreciate a horrible right wing politician for their political skill, right? Um, that one might do, one might do that. And I think that's a, you know, a, a an important sort of analysis to undertake. Um, and yet um, the kind of social justice and then the the kind of uh, stance of moral outrage with regard to politics rather than a cool analysis seems to increasingly be not just something that afflicts the US, but um, but well beyond the US. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I think... Um... I think that this is probably rooted in um, a certain difficulty in really imagining. I mean, you could say, yeah, it's just it, it's a difficulty in 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 imagining exactly what we're talking about, actually, when we're talking about capitalism. That's what it comes down to for me. That is to say, um, so to, to the, if we connect this idea of social justice and sort of racial capitalism and the notion of capitalism as a ripoff, we can see that these things are all connected in the following way. The concept of racial capitalism, at least as it was articulated in the in the you know in a, in the in the eighties, is very much connected to the idea that the kind of capitalist world system is based on unequal exchange and that you know it's that what what really is going on here is a kind of an extraction of surpluses by the developed um, northern uh capitalist powers from the from the rest of, of, of the world and that you know that this had, had been kind of racially um that this has been kind of racially marked um 
obviously there are, you know, kind of very serious critiques of that going back to, you know, Brenner's articles from the 1970s, really showing that, well, the origins of capitalism didn't really rely on that, that in fact, you know, most of the surpluses that were produced um, were done internally to, you know, kind of the, the, the developed capitalist mm -hmm. world and that we really need to look at production and class relations and not unequal exchange. Um, but I think a lot of that is now coming back and now and now it's being generalized. And of course, you know, Marx's whole point was that even in the in the freest of free labor markets, there's exploitation, right? So to 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 frame the problem of capitalism as a problem of unequal exchange is to miss the actual engine of surplus extraction, to not talk about that, right? Um so that's like that's sort of one thing that's going on. And obviously that connects to the notion of social justice, because basically what you're doing is you're conceptualizing society um, as a, a kind of a playing field, which has been somehow distorted, but could be set aright through a judicial procedure uh, or a politicized judicial procedure. I mean, this in a way goes back to the sort of the juridification of politics yeah. that we were talking about earlier, right? Um, and, you know, the, the problem with that, of course, is that you're not raising the question of what kind of society. You're basically talking about are things fair or unfair, but you're not thinking about the actual structure of the society as it exists, right? And I think when the, when the language of justice and fairness is the basic kind of you know focal point of politics there's a paradoxically conservative aspect to that because justice can only exist within a given political framework right yeah, yeah absolutely and I, I mean what's interesting is that um i think this critique is something that people who are um sympathetic and uh, who might describe themselves as Marxists or maybe as left social Democrats, actually probably more accurately, would wield this critique against um, effectively woke politics, right? The, the, the kind of um, concerns with uh, racial, sexual, gender-based discrimination and, or, and beyond, well beyond that and emphasize class. But I think one interesting thing that you do in Metaverse is obviously take that further um, and turn your aim at precisely those maybe class first socialists, which is a stupid term. You know, I mean, it's 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 either redundant or it's saying something else um, in that in that they are guilty themselves of this. So it's not just a matter of um, foregrounding class at the expense of race, gender, sexuality, um, i.e. economics over um economics over over identities to put it that way i guess um but but really about um not being in favor of fairness not being in favor of justice um at a much more fundamental level um and and one way you do this i think is is by talking about the i guess the cmc vision of the world so maybe you could explain that because i thought that was quite neat yeah so we could say um basically um you know um the what what I was saying there in that in that note, if we think about 
the way that obviously you know Marx in in Marx in Capital contrasts these two circuits. He's he there's a circuit that goes from money to commodity to to more money. That's basically the circuit of capital. And then there's the circuit that goes from commodity to money to commodity. That in, in some ways you could think about that as the circuit in which most people in capitalist society live most of the time. That is to say, they sell their commodity labor power to get money in order to buy things to sustain themselves. So it uh, goes from use value to use value, right? Um, and the the kind of ideology of capital society, we could say, is that you, you think that, in fact, everyone is basically in this CMC circuit or they're in this circuit of of trying to um, trying to sell their commodities in order to get the things that they need. That's kind of a benign view of it. Right. If you look at the world from that perspective, you could say, well, that the, the, basically the problem is to make sure that everybody gets paid the right value for their particular commodity and that there's fair exchange on the market. That would be a completely just society, right? From that from from that perspective, right? And that's exactly in a way the demand, you could say, of um, much of the racial capitalism school, right? The idea is that um, oh, there's a particular category of labor that is being underpaid. It should be paid. We should make sure that everyone is getting what they should and that there are fair exchanges happening um, throughout the society, right? But obviously, the point is that, um, you know, fair exchange and that of that kind is completely compatible with capitalism, with you know, private ownership of the means of production with the determination of investment decisions by private and unaccountable actors, all of those kind of things, right? It leaves that entirely untouched. So the point is not to say, that the, the point is to say that what is the nature of a, of a radical political demand? It cannot be the demand for justice. It must be the demand for a new structure of accumulation actually that's the difficult point right it's <laughs> we are not asking for fairness we're asking to for a new form of society and the well, new form of society will it be fairer than the old form of society i think this would be an interesting question i'm sure that the political philosophers have many things to say about this I'm not sure that the, 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 that the category of fairness can be applied across social epochs in the way that, that, that sometimes is implied by that kind of discourse. Yeah, it can only be judged by its, by its own rules. Now, what, but why do you say, before we move on um, to a slightly related topic, why do you say a new structure of accumulation? Um, well, what I mean by that is um, a, a new way of basically... Um, making decisions about the investment of the social surplus. I mean, whether that would be an accumulated, obviously a socialist form of doing that would not have the rhythm of capitalist accumulation. Nevertheless, there would still be a social surplus that would have to be, something would have to be done with it, right? And the, the, those decisions would be determined though in some kind of actual democratic way or through kind of, you know, maybe, through some kind of scientific determination um, that would not have to do um, obviously with profitability or would, yeah. or profitability would be subordinated. That's all I mean by that. I mean to say that obviously a post-capitalist society is not, it, it's, we're not talking about a society in which everyone um, 
we're talking about a society that is still a society in which there is still a social surplus and in which the, the question of what to do with that social surplus is still on the table. Right. Okay. Um, I, I was going to get into maybe why, whether, whether it'd still be a, a society itself, but anyway, we'll, we'll, that, that's maybe mm. a theoretical question, um, which we can leave for another time because I wanted to turn just finally to round this out, uh, to the new left review piece that has just, uh, very recently come out, uh, in which you with Robert Brenner present seven theses on us politics. Um, and a lot of it, a lot of it concerns specific uh, U.S. electoral politics and trying to characterize um, Bidenism. Um, but perhaps the most controversial aspect of it, I think, following discussion on it, you know, which I've read since it's come out, um, is the notion of political capitalism. Um, this idea that you and Robert Brenner advanced that the rate of return on capital outstrips the rate of growth and that this rate of return relies on politics, not on productive investment. Um, so the obvious cases are the bailouts in the 2008 crisis and most recently uh, during COVID, which were obviously um, exceptional. But I, I wonder um, how much of the rest of the evidence that is wielded to um, argue that we're moving into this form of political capitalism uh, is actually um, that unique. Yeah, I mean, well, this has been, I guess that's been the basic um, pushback on this, that, oh, well, this is not new. We've seen all these kind of things before, um, you know, tax breaks and privatizations and bailouts and so on. That's all, um, that's all, um, that's all just standard um, capitalism. Um, I guess the the the, the thing that um, I would say about that, and I would say that these theses were presented as theses, and each one of them would require considerable further development to really, you know, kind of be cashed out. But I would say that, um, you know, in treating all this stuff, we need to understand uh, that this is happening in the context. It's it's happening in a new context, right? That is to say, these bailouts and 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 privatizations and fiscal concessions, um, and then the context in which it's happening is one of secular stagnation, as you know, to use Larry Summers' term, right? Um, and that is giving it in 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 our sort of you know in our our thesis is that that's giving all this really a very, very new think about that i mean look um the situation in the world today is of course it's massive glut of excess savings that like it's not clear where to invest this right <laughs> uh that's a huge problem um for the for the world economy um, and so what is emerging or what our suggestion is, is what is emerging is a situation in which, um, you know, what capital is doing is basically looking for investments that in which returns are guaranteed through um, political mechanisms. And um, that would be something quite different. I mean, obviously, there's a kind of transition probably from quantity to quality here, right? So none of the specific mechanisms in a way are new, but their weight in the overall kind of structure of, of, of the economy is different. Their specific weight is different. That's really what we mean. And the, the term political capitalism tries to capture that. It's capitalism, it continues to be capitalism in the sense that it's profit-oriented activity, 
but it's political in the sense that it requires basically political mechanisms to extract surplus from the underlying population. It's not the exploitation of wage labor in the old way. But wouldn't then, I mean, if that is um, all the case, um, if that's all true, wouldn't then the politics, for example, of anti-corruption from below, charging the political class with all being corrupt, or indeed all the politics of justice and fairness, which basically say that there's um, too much plunder and expropriation yeah. going on, wouldn't they actually be, despite your earlier criticism that, of them, actually be correct? Isn't that the appropriate acute, politics to political capitalism? It's a super, very acute question. And I've been thinking about exactly that question, actually. So... Um, um, so how, how to, and so like, what, what should we be doing? I mean, are we in the position then of trying to reestablish a normal capitalism so that we can have a normal socialism? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's basically the question that, that, that you're asking, but I do think there's a sense in which, yes, I do actually think there's a sense in which it's not an accident that we have. I mean, in a sense, what I'm saying is that. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of the emergence of these new forms of anti-corruption politics, social justice, um, <clears throat> you know, defense of the impartial state, as if they were they resulted from a weakness of the left, which they do, but they also result from the fact that there's been this structural change um, in in capitalism itself, in which such demands are actually quite relevant to um to what is happening um so i don't know exactly what to say about that i mean it's a quite hopeless in a way kind of note to end on because basically what is being said is that what's really what we need to have is a new bourgeois revolution yeah well there you go we're back to there yeah that's basically where, where where we are. So, in order to avoid a slide into some some other darker kind of world, I mean, that this is the this is the this is the thing. I mean, in, uh, yeah, when I'm feeling particularly gloomy, you know, it's like, well, maybe you know, maybe it's maybe Weber was basically right, and sort of because I think that he saw kind of you know kind of late antique kind of rerun of the of the of the late antique that was the future of the uh of the modern world you know um and there's a certain sense in which you know you you have you can get a sense of that um with the notion of political capitalism but you know i wouldn't uh, you know that that it, it would be very facile and 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 kind of a sillily pessimistic to go there um but there it is it is a possibility <laughs> Right. Uh, in terms of the spectrum of political possibilities that are on the table. I mean, so just to finish off, because and I wasn't going to go here, but one of the notes, um, because I think you've just referred to this, um, is that Weber refers um, to kind of two models in antiquity, um, which would be kind of appropriate or analogous in some way to understanding politics today, which is the Republican solution, which you have effectively the capitalist squabbling over favors from the state um, and support from the state. And the other one being a, a sort of monarchy, um, which would establish um, some impartial order, which I guess in today's terms would be a sort of Bonapartist solution. Um, is that what you're kind of hinting at? I mean, you know, absent any kind of working class socialist 
um, attempt to move beyond capitalism, that, that those are the choices that we're left with? I think that's a danger. I think it's a real danger. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that, um, I mean, Weber's writings about classical antiquity are really, in a certain way, writings, of course, about, um, you could say, monopoly capitalism in some ways. I mean, that's kind of, it's, he has a complex relationship to these things. But yes, I think that, um, you know, um, what's on the table are really, are it, it, what we really have to understand is the deep, deep fusion between political and the, the political and the economic in, in, in the current period. And the extent to which actually neoliberalism itself was a po fundamentally a political project. Um, the talk about market markets in, in a way is very, very misleading in the neoliberal mm -hmm. era. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, if you think about something even like the, the Volcker shock, you know, the, the era opens with a naked use of political power. And that kind of characterizes it right up through the whole the, the whole the whole period, right? The much more classically capitalist era, you could say, was the kind of long boom of the of the nineteen forty five to nineteen you know seventy nine um, period or so. Well, that's kind of to stretch it, but you know you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, very good. Um, I guess th this all seems to be, I mean, of a piece of obviously with capitalist stagnation, or it's certainly stagnation of Western capitalism. Um, and I guess it's hard to I, I, one of one of the things I think on this podcast we always sort of end up coming back to is that it's quite hard to theorize and to really understand what's going on in our times because of the confusion, because so much feels like the breakdown of the old without rather than. The, the emergence of anything new. Um, when you advance something like political capitalism, it's hard to um, really see whether we're just in this sort of interregnum before this before a new regime of accumulation kind of emerges and kind of kicks things off. Um, because I would be tempted to see just to, just to kind of conclude on maybe with this and then to put the question to you whether you know this political capitalism isn't just uh, you know what or the things that you know you're calling political capitalism aren't just a feature of this um this moment of instability and this kind of this stagnation before um kind of a new round of accumulation might be kicked off in some new form i mean the the problem i mean so i would just say obviously you can just say we'll see which is a really lame kind of conclusion to reach <laughs> but i would I, I would point out that you know the the previous um kind of kicking off of accumulation particularly the last one the one of, uh, that follows the second world war depended on a massive destruction of fixed capital uh, unleashed by global war um which is not only not an appealing prospect but i think an unlikely one i mean obviously we haven't talked about what's going on in ukraine <laughs> and so on but i think um warfare on the scale required to reset capital accumulation would probably spell the end of the human race so i'm not sure that a new round of accumulation is sort of on the horizon in in, in that sense um 
And I also think, you know, it's sort of unlikely that we will get even a kind of mass employment economy for, for a variety of reasons that we could get into. But the the obviously the kind of classic kind of Fordist mass production, mass employment regime, uh, it doesn't really seem to be in the cards, which means that in a sense, you know, the, the socialist solution is as relevant as it ever has been, maybe more relevant, right? But we just, we, we, but we also have to recognize, I mean, it's important, I think, to recognize the actual nature of the structure of exploitation that we're struggling against and to think through what its dynamics are, what the nature of the political conflicts are, what are the actual agents, all that stuff is like, we have to think that stuff through. Um, and I think um, it's important to start by, it's probably important to start with the economy. All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll uh, We'll leave that there. Okay, thanks a lot. Hello, welcome to The After Party with Alex, Phil and George. Um, guys, what did you find of that interview? Yeah, I thought there was some some very big uh, questions discussed. I mean, the, the idea of the movement away from the kind of the rational legal basis of authority of the state to, to something new I think bringing in Weber in that way that was really yeah really really great stuff um also liked the the phrase consolation prize Marxism I think this is one that I will be <laughs> will be uh using and and crediting of course um but yeah no I think the idea that you can have this kind of approach to to studying society that's based in in social theory um which you and Dylan discussed at the beginning that's also one that uh, I have to I have to admit um yeah I did find myself agreeing that you should have some theory Phil I agree with George um and you know like uh I guess I mean there were certain kind of moments of emphasis that I wouldn't that I'm not quite certain of um and I know we've got a few kind of specific um themes to pick up on but I mean, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, kind of genuinely insightful. And I did like Consolation Prize Marxism as well. So, I mean, turning, I guess, to one of the first questions we should discuss, this question of the erosion of the legal, uh, legal rational, bureaucratic state. Um, it's something that we discuss. In fact, we discuss in our book, The End of the End of History, uh, um, in reference to um, Berlusconi. It's something that I brought up with Dylan, of course. Um and the way that the, I guess, the, that erosion creates this temptation for the left to defend, um, you know, kind of the civilized way of running things, right? And, that, and that, that, that's a problem because we know how politically limited that sort of approach is. But at the same time, um, what do you want to say? Like, yeah, just rip everything up and make politics completely personalized and blur the boundaries between office and the person. I mean, that's surely not something one would defend. So I, yeah, I think it's something, it, it, it's a puzzle, I guess. Yeah, no, I think it was a good, a good discussion, not least because putting Berlusconi as the precursor of Trump, I think is the right, you know, the, the right figure to use. It's not, um, it's not Mussolini or, or Hitler or, it, you know, it's, it's not a, a fascist precursor, but it's a, um somebody who's yeah who's whose major political significance in terms of precursor of trump is this idea that you can use office somewhat legitimately to to further your individual interests if you kind of have a, a sufficient like wink and, and a nudge because 
you know, this um, independent authority of the state f- precisely from its ability, maybe you could say from its ability to to solve um, problems doesn't really um, vibe, I was going to say, but doesn't really find its basis in citizens' real experience. So, yeah, why not? Why not reduce um, politics to this, you know, ability to to give out resources to to your to your family um, family members? But I mean, it's it's bigger than just corruption, right? I think that's the important thing because it's you can still have a separation formally and publicly between the office and the office holder, but you know, be making a little bit on the side. I think that the the erosion is like deeper because it's a whole concept like the conceptualization, which there is no real division, right? Where um, yeah, the, the the I think the the point that that Dylan made, which I really agreed with, was that the. The context for this is that there's no large-scale political project, so it's not like you have this kind of corruption and graft where you're kind of taking a bit off off the top, but you you have this really clear social constituency. It's like, well, if you don't have this um, kind of clearly defined parts of society which have these different kind of large-scale political projects, then actually the office as a pursuit of individual interests is is part of the definition of the, of the current periods yeah, and I, I thought that, that was a good a right. good thing that he brought out so i mean i would i mean you know it's worth saying i suppose it's an abiding theme particularly of american politics right um with the kind of um pork barrel the sheer kind of you know the sheer scale of the american um capitalist machine means you know pork barrel politics has always been a huge theme of it but also the kind of the inner city um democratic party machine um, corralling, you know, various ethnic kind of voting blocks uh, into delivering votes for urban city bosses and what have you. So that it's an abiding theme of American politics. But I think what's specific to our era, um, as George indicated, is like how that factors in the, with the absence of ideology or with the absence of any kind of meaningful attempt to cohere society politically. And in a different context, I think in the with the absence of sovereignty, right? If you don't have kind of um, a meaningful center of political power and no purpose to competition for political power um, or idea for what political power will be used for, then inevitably it becomes, you know, it kind of um, sinks into patrimonialism essentially. Yeah, I wanted to turn, I guess, now to the question of uh, of, of uh, Constellation Prize Marxism, right? That well, at least we, at least we made democracy, right? That's, I mean, and the we there is the working class and the workers' movement, and uh, you know that sort of idea that, um, well, I think it was kind of amply discussed in in the in the interview. So I wonder what you guys thought of that because it it is something which I have defaulted to, as I said. Uh, as as a sort of explanation for why democracy, it's like well, and and not just why democracy, but why um, a sort of minimally efficient, rational, impartial state, right? In, to refer back to what we were just discussing, that I have also said that comes about because the working class disciplines the elite into being like having a modicum of impartiality and um, all, you know all the rest of it, right? It's uh, so not just not just the question of yeah, democracy. So I, so I, but I don't know. Maybe maybe I've I've been completely wrong in thinking that. I think. I mean, I so I suppose there are two two thoughts in response to what you said, and also to the um, the point raised by Dylan. So I'm 
I'm always slightly suspicious of this disciplining point. Um, in the, particularly because it's often made, you know, in the context of the twenty, with a retrospective kind of glance towards the twentieth century, and the claim that um, it always seemed to me kind of a backhand. There was kind of a backhanded Stalinism in the claim, in the sense that there was this attempt to kind of retroactively vindicate the Soviet Union. So you know, the Soviet Union was bad, but at least by virtue of its presence, it kind of forced um, or allowed organized labor to extract certain kinds of goods from. Um, capitalists that they might otherwise not have been able to. And that seems to me kind of, um, you know, limited, politically limited in terms of vision, suspect for its kind of retrospective vindication of some of the worst aspects of the 20th century. So the disciplining argument as a general rule, I think it's, you know, it seems to me like it's, uh, yeah, a limited one. On the second point about that, the, you know, who achieved bourgeois democracy, it's a very it's a it's a difficult one and like you said kind of I suppose I've also fallen into the habit of um making the kind of the easy and pat claim that it was you know purely kind of that it's a artifact of um of working class success and struggle and it's I think it's you know that's obviously not the case but on the what I mean it seems to me it's very you know like it's some kind of unstable equilibrium I think it would be the best way to understand it. There's no way to understand um, mass democracy in the 20th century without understanding the rise of, um, you know, an urban, um, an urban working class in the industrialized countries and the pressure, the political pressure that that this puts on limited um, franchises based on property qualifications, which was, you know, the kind of inheritance of the 19th century. But on the other hand, at the same time, you know, all the all the um the the basis for that politics was already there in bourgeois politics in terms of um civic equality um legal universalism um and the basis of representative government so you know it's a there is no e- i mean i don't think there is a straightforward answer yeah. it it is the con- it is the contradictions the internal contradictions of bourgeois politics itself that we you know that we're dealing with no i think it was a really good discussion that you had with with dylan actually on this on this point alex because i think the yeah i mean that's why that phrase consolation prize marxism sort of resonated so much because it is it is the easy answer to give like oh yeah you know the bourgeoisie couldn't even do bourgeois democracy you know we had to do it for them sort of thing and actually you know the, the the first thing that went through my head is well you know saying it's either the bourgeoisie or the workers doing it no it's the struggle between the two of them and that's what produces it but it, it that's a bit of a try answer in some ways because it it does depend on the you know the historical context and the the kind of you know you said unstable equilibrium phil and that's you know the, at any given point in time there there must be um differences in in the power that that those two social groups have um, with relation to the other. I mean, yeah, I think it also raises questions for what what does this mean for for bourgeois democracy today, like or for you know, democracy today, because and this I think um Dylan's working on a on a book project on this if I'm if I'm not mistaken, on kind of history of democracy and all this this sort of thing. Um but yeah, so what what does it mean for bourgeois democracy if the bourgeoisie are not um sort of willing to to or they don't feel that they need to discipline the working class if if that's been done if that defeat's been been um been handed out 
you know, where did the bourgeoisie go from from there? Yeah, no, that's. A, I mean, it, it is, a, yeah, practical question as well because I think we all obviously by default defend democracy very strongly, right? And so <laughs> that's almost kind of almost almost an under, it's an understatement to say it. Um, but I think it it is kind of troubling if the condition for democracy is a quiescent working class. Where does the push for democracy actually lead? Right. Um, if it if it um, is sufficiently kind of challenging, I guess, um, what, what kind of room is there for for democracy today, especially with a bourgeoisie which doesn't even hold to the kind of, let's say, 1913 vision of what, you know, liberalism and democracy would mean? Um, yeah, where does that lead? I guess the sort of simple, the simple answer, but maybe it's too easy and I should sort of re reassess this a little bit is that any you know any extension of democracy is an ex- is an increase in working class power like you just want the more that you extend democracy through different areas of life ultimately you know through the economy into to all aspects of human life that's that's more collective power that we all have but it's it's got to be a little bit more complicated than, than that unfortunately you can't just uh, solve these grand historical intellectual uh, problems quite so easily yeah, I mean, he, just to make a reference to this, and feel free to comment on it, or, or we'll just move on to the to the last question. But Dylan does make a note in 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 microverse, which I thought was quite interesting, is that you know a truly humanized society wouldn't would no longer have the metaphysics of sovereignty anymore. Now that's a kind of maybe grand way of of putting it, but that it would move beyond these questions, and so d- the question of democracy itself wouldn't be. Um, any more discussed in, in specifically those terms, um, you know, that, that it's a the democracy is something that we hold up against capitalism, but it wouldn't be something that would be um, really the issue anymore. In, in a, in but it's a, the old, society. I mean, it's, a, it's the old classical Marxist claim, right? Um, the very distinctive contribution to political theory of the withering away of the state. Um, you know, that's the way I understand that claim. Um it's essentially that you know politics, um, the achievement, the, or the seeing politics as the kind of consummation of human activity, that becomes redundant in a society in which people have more control over their lives, and so politics is supplanted by general human purposiveness because human purposes can be realised both at the individual and the collective level more easily. They don't need or require, you know, the need to be kind of institutionalized through, um, you know, political organizations struggle with other social groups through these huge conflicts over resources and status and what have you. Yeah, indeed. So just finally, the question of political capitalism, we didn't go into it in too much depth and um, perhaps we have to leave that to another episode. But, you know, um, you regular listeners will be know that we've been discussing the question of techno-feudalism and the political capitalism question is is um, not um, not the same as that, but it it's kind of a ha- halfway there, basically, right? Because both of both kind of arguments about neo-feudalism as well as political capitalism say that the role of the state in upward redistribution of wealth um, is much more key now than it was throughout the 20th century and indeed the 19th century and before. Um, so... Yeah. So I'm skeptical, as I said in the interview, I'm not sure what you guys think. It made me think, actually, that in some ways <clears throat> you could rebrand like neo-feudalism as hyper-political capitalism, right? I don't know if this is actually right or not, but um, it did go through my head that the 
idea is that you know if you introduce this um, element of of um, expropriation rather than exploitation to your analysis, then isn't neo feudalism just taking that to the? It's a difference of quantity, not quality. Um, and so that's why I think the the point that, that you made or the question you asked, Alex, was where around kind of is the politics of social justice a good fit under kind of conditions of political capitalism? I think it was a you know, and he, Dylan did say he'd been thinking about that. I think that's a was a good kind of thought-provoking question um yeah because it there clearly is some room for analysis like this as as um product you know production the bourgeoisie turn away from that but it's not clear to me that political capitalism is exactly the right phrase or framing but i don't have a i don't have a better one up my sleeve i should yeah say. i mean i tend to agree with george i mean i think you know i know what people mean or i think i know what people mean when they talk about it but it doesn't seem to me to be a very good fit because, you know, it kind of, I mean, you know, misses the point that there is always, obviously, there's always a politics that comes, you know, with capitalism. So, I mean, once you have capitalism, you have capitalist politics. So to talk in terms of political capitalism seems to me to kind of fudge and, um, you know, be kind of a kind of semantic juggling that obscures at least as much as it clarifies. And then if you want to say that there's a greater role for the state in capitalism now, than there was in the past, you know, I mean, I'm willing, I'm willing to accept it. But again, it's a very old thesis, you know, that goes back at least to um, the late 19th century and the debates on the emergence of finance capital, at least on the left, but also among liberals, right? I mean, that was, um, you know, J.A. Hobson's kind of um, critique of what was happening in the economy. It's the critique of the kind of proto-Keynesians, um, as well as the Hilfrand, Hilferding, Luxembourg and Lenin um, debates around that time. So we're, we're all hinged around developing a politics that responded to the growing role of the state in economic development and economic expansion. So, you know, I don't, I'm, I never see that they, what they're saying that is additional to those earlier debates, except to assume that they're passe. So I'm always left a bit kind of, um, when people talk in terms of political capitalism, I'm always left a bit uncertain as to if anything is being added or if it's simply kind of a rebrand of all the debates that are being invoked but not dealt with thoroughly but nothing, could, nothing seems be. to be very specific about the current era hmm. but it could be that those debates weren't right at the time but things have changed sufficiently now that they are kind of correct now it could be but that case isn't made you know so i mean if it was made and if it was made with specific claims about the differences you know analytically empirically you know i'd be more i'd be more i'd be less skeptical i suppose i mean the, the remarkable thing i guess um considering dylan riley and particularly who robert brenner is is that I mean, the two had a discussion a kind of little podcast series i think last year the year before that um which maybe we'll, i'll share the the, the link in the show notes um where um they discussed this growing role of the state in in um in the economy and you know in, in more in more depth and detail than we managed to do um in in our you know kind of one hour thing there but um it, it's worth listening to i'm not sure it resolves any of the questions but I, what, what is remarkable about it is that robert brenner is the thinker of the transition from feudalism to capitalism and he starts playing with this idea of neo-feudalism or really the role that um, political power is now central to the extraction of surplus in a way that it wasn't 
you know, that ha- it hasn't been in the 19th and 20th centuries. And that's quite remarkable. Um, so, I, and I think given who he is, it should be taken seriously. I'm still not convinced and in part because I, I think it still needs to be proven, right? They need, the mechanics need to be gone through and exact to, to show that this is not just, um, mm. that the quantity is qualitatively different and also that it's a durable thing, that it's not just this, as I said, suggested in the interview, a kind of interregnum before a new regime of accumulation kind of takes hold. It, yeah, it, it's kind of like if, if somebody is like a leading expert on transition and they th- say that something new is a transition, do you is does that make it more or less plausible? Because on the one hand, they know what transitions are like. Uh, on the other, it's kind of their, you know, maybe they see everything as a potential transition to a new a new form of uh, economic order. But no, I think um, I think it is something we should we should come back to because there clearly is something there um or there is there is certainly something that needs to be explained about the turn away from from production and this is you know one of the theories which i think does have the most legs in terms of explaining that even if it's hasn't quite turned me into an an uh, an, uh, an advocate just yet all right very good uh, we hope you've enjoyed this i'm sure it will prove thought-provoking as usual get in touch send us an email drop us a message uh, or a reply and in the comments on patreon telling us what you think and we'll get back to uh, discussing this when we record the next alpha bonus bonus um, thank you all for listening and uh, we'll catch you next week bye-bye